congregation that the church was in need of some extra money. So we asked them to consider being more, being more than generous, offering whoever gave the most money the chance to pick three hymns. After the offering plates were passed about the church, the pastor glanced down and noticed that someone had graciously offered up a total of $10,000. He was so excited that he immediately shared his joy with his congregation and said he'd like to personally thank the person who placed the money in the plate. A very quiet, elderly, saintly lady in the back of the church shyly raised her hand. The pastor asked her to come to the front. So she slowly made her way towards him, and the pastor told her how wonderful it was that she gave so much, and in thanks, he asked her to pick three hymns. Her eyes brightened as she looked over the congregation, and she pointed to the three most handsome men in the church and said, I'll take him and him and him. Good. I laughed out loud, too, when I read it, but you never know how jokes are going to land, so I'm just glad I wasn't up here laughing by myself. It's good. I'm not giving a message on money this morning, so you all can exhale. Um, And Luke 16, which is where we're at, you can start turning there, is actually not about money, although it mentions it. I'm giving a message on Luke 16 because Luke 16 is about the state of our hearts and our minds, which is way more important than money, amen? The state of our hearts and our souls and our minds is much more important than money. But the state of our hearts and our souls will determine how we use money and stuff and everything that God has given us. Now, if you have a Bible, I just want to encourage you today. This is a tough text. It just is. It's hard to understand. It's hard to get your mind around. So I'm going to try to help you understand it this morning. But I want you to follow closely today, like always, but maybe especially today. So if you have an app or a Bible, follow close. But a little background, last week we looked at Luke 15, which are some incredible stories, right? The prodigal son and the the shepherd leaving the 99 sheep to go after the one um, and the the, the lost coin. The, The gal surges throughout her whole house until she finds it. And the whole point is this, that Jesus enjoys pursuing people. He loves to pursue people, and his job is to pursue, and our job is to repent. This has been the theme we've seen in Luke of Jesus' teaching for a few chapters now of repentance, which is turning away from sin and turning towards Jesus. And so in Luke 16, Jesus turns to his disciples now, who should be, at this point, repentant followers, and we know as we read, not all of them were, but These are the guys who should be living in repentance, living a repentant lifestyle, and he now describes to them what a life of repentance looks like. And he's going to say throughout this chapter, essentially this, a truly repentant heart will produce an entrusted life. A truly repentant heart will produce an entrusted life. Entrusted. Here's what this means. Here's what I'm talking about. If you're entrusted with something, it means you're given something to take care of for the giver's honor. So if I give you something to take care of, I want, if I'm entrusting you with it, I want you to take care of it and use it for my honor. Stewardship is another word used for this. So I want you to have this lens as we read this passage and not get hung up on the wrong things, okay? And this will really help us not get hung up on the wrong things. 
So Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Now Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. Verse 5, so he summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write 50. Next, he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And even if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now with this section, here's my honest reaction when I read it, especially verses 1 through 9, okay? Without any study, any thought, my honest reaction is this. What on earth are you talking about, Jesus? I Read it, and you go, hard shift. I just read about the prodigal son. What is this, and where are you going with that? Are you celebrating a shady dude? Like, I mean, that's what it seems like, that he's celebrating a dis- dishonest behavior. So let me help you understand the cultural situation, which will help us understand this text better. This manager, or this steward, was unrighteous. So what you have to understand is there was no banks in this culture, okay? So you couldn't go and take out a loan from the bank. Your bank wouldn't help you manage your finances. So it was common to hire a manager or a steward to handle your quote-unquote loans, And it was common for debt to be measured in amounts of oil or wheat, not cash. So that's why you see these examples in here. But what's happening is this steward is mishandling funds and goods for his own benefit. Embezzlement is what's happening here. He's skimming some off the top for himself. And he gets caught. And his master is about to fire him. So to secure his his future favor with other people so he can manage perhaps other people's goods and money and such, he goes to some of the debtors and goes, hey, how much do you owe? And they're like, oh, I owe, I owe 100. And he's like, hey, just, let's just change that contract quick and make it 50, all right? And then he goes to this other one, hey, how much do you owe? Oh, you owe this much? Let's, let's bump it down a little bit. Shady. But no doubt clever 
because they're going to remember this guy. He's going to get fired, but then these, these other people are going to go, hey, this guy did us a favor. Maybe we should do him one, and then he maybe will be able to put food on the table. Now, the master here is seen, the only thing we see is in verse 8, he ends up praising this shady guy. But I'm positive that this master was fuming mad. Here's why. He got taken advantage of himself, right? He just got, he, these other people owed him all of this stuff, and he's not getting the full amount. So he's fuming, but even though he's fuming, He's a wise guy, he's a smart guy, and he recognizes how clever or shrewd this move was. So he ends up praising him, and here we see it in verse 8. Read it again with me. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. Now, a commentator on the book of Luke, Leon Morris, said this. T.W. Manson reminds us that there is a world of difference between, listen, I applaud the dishonest steward because he acted cleverly, and I applaud the clever steward because he acted dishonestly. See, he's not celebrating dishonesty. He's celebrating his clever actions. So don't get caught up in, in the mess here, and don't think that the master or applied, God applauds shady behavior and practices. He doesn't. The master here and God values and applauds wise stewardship. That's the point. Now some perspective here. This is a parable, okay? A parable, as we've talked about in weeks past, is a story with a point. And as I said last week, we can't get hung up on the particulars in these stories. They have a singular point. So what does Jesus say his point is? End of verse 8. He says it. For, meaning therefore, here's the point, the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. Again, even this explanation is kind of strange. So let me go to another commentator on Luke, Daryl Bach, and it's on the screen. He said, Christians should apply themselves to honor and serve God in their actions as much as secular people apply themselves to obtain protection and prosperity from money and the world. So let this sink in. In other words, if unbelievers are so motivated and successful at gaining money and gaining stuff just for themselves, just for me, Believers in Jesus should be even more motivated and successful to take care of money and stuff for God because it's been entrusted to them by him. Does that make sense? So entrusted, again, means you're, you're being given something to take care of for the use of the giver's honor. So some keys to stewardship or, or being entrusted is, first, it's not yours. Second, it's a responsibility. Third, it's expected to be used. The master doesn't just give it to you to hang on to or bury out back. And there's other parables about that. And it's expected to be used for the giver's honor, not for your own comfort. So you could say it like this. Living an entrusted life means turning away from treating stuff like it's yours. So let me show you this in the text. Jesus continues to explain his point in verses 10 through 12. He says, Whoever is faithful in very little 
is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So, if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what's genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? See, it's about faithfulness. If you live an entrusted life, you are faithful with the stuff and the money and everything that you have because it's not yours. It's treating stuff like it's not yours, regardless of how much or how little you have. And living entrusted means not just turning away from treating it like it's yours, it's turning towards treating it like it's God's because, well, it is. Verse 13 says that, No servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You see, money's kind of a side point here. He's talking about affections. He's talking about love. Are you treating stuff like it's God? Or are you turning towards God and treating the stuff he's giving you like it's from him to begin with? Let me, let me give you an example. I know we have some kids in the house. Do any of you kids happen to have a toy car that I could use? I'll give it back to you. You, you got one? Can I have it? I'll give it back, I promise. Okay, does anyone have one like with them this morning? It's okay, I brought a back, I did bring a backup. Anyone know who took that car? <laughs> uh, Josh, did you say? There it is, thank you, Dave. I know Dave loves playing with cars, so, you know. Um, great. Um, and then, does anyone, I know, I know adults don't carry this much either, so I might be striking out. Does anyone have any cash? It can be a dollar bill, I don't care, any, a 20, a thousand dollar bill would be great. I'll give it back to you as well. So, here, we got the closest one right here. Thank you, sir. Perfect. All right. <laughs> we came through. I just wanted to keep the kids awake, mainly, but... Here's what I'm getting at, okay? Here's what Jesus is getting at in here. Living an entrusted life or being, good, being a good steward means treating stuff that we have less and less like it's ours and more and more like it's God's. So when you get a new car, when you get a new house, when you get anything, you go, you know what? Thank you, God, for this. How can I use this for your honor? You know, when you get a car, let's just talk about cars. Do you ever use your car to bless somebody else? Let them borrow it. Do you ever give someone a ride to help them out? Do you ever help someone move? Do you ever give someone a ride and have a great conversation about Christ in the vehicle? I mean, because it's not yours. It's God's. So are you using it at all for his honor? That's what this means to live an entrusted life. And with money, we go, okay, this is from God. This is his anyways. So how could I use some of this to honor God? How could I use all of it to honor God? How could I give some of it first directly back to God? Certainly that would mean giving to here, Stonebridge, to missions, to, to anything that is the Lord's work, right? To giving to the poor, helping someone else out, treating it like it's not mine, being open-handed with it. Okay, how could I help other people out? Now, certainly I need to help my family out. I have a responsibility from God to protect them and provide for them, right? But then if 
if I have some left over, how could I help out? Or even deciding before I have some left over, how could I help out? See, this is, this is what this means practically. So the question isn't, do you have stuff or do you have money? It's fine to have both. The question is, do you live like it's God? Do you live like it's God's stuff and God's money and not yours? Do you live an entrusted life? See, this has to do with your heart. Your heart determines your priority. See, the way that you use money and stuff is just as important when you're making $20,000 as it is when you're making $500,000. See, he says in here, if you're not faithful with little, you're not going to be faithful with much. So the way, so if, if you, let's say you're a high schooler in here and you're, you're making minimum wage or something like that, you're not making much. The way that you use your money right now shows your priorities as much as anyone else in here that makes way more than you. It has all to do with your heart and priorities. And this can start at any uh, pay grade. A repentant heart turns away from treating it like it's yours and turns toward treating it like it's God's because it is His. Now, I want to give you a practical example here. We'll set these aside for a second. I will give them back. I want to give you an example of how a lot of you are treating money like it's God's and not yours. And I want to celebrate you guys. So take a look at this. So this is our giving report. And so for the, um, our fiscal year, July to May, which is just one month away from being complete, we're over 100% for budget. So let's give God a hand for that. Praise God. I bring this up now not to ask you for money. Hear me well. I'm saying many of you get it. Many of you hear this this morning going, yep, it is God's. And you decided this past month, you decided in the past to give your money to God and his work here. And I praise God for you. You've, you've proven that you get it. And you're giving your money to God right here. I love that. Praise God. I'm not asking for money. I'm just showing, hey, a lot of y'all get it. And thank you. So let's keep going in the text. Let's go to verse 14. The Pharisees are here. Okay, these religious leaders. Verse 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. And Jesus told them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others. But listen, God knows your hearts. For what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed and everyone is urgently invited to enter it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter in the law to drop out. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And everyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now there's a lot here. But here's the point. Jesus says it. God knows your heart. And he's essentially asking these Pharisees, is your heart repentant? Do you have a heart that's turning away from sin and self and turning towards God or not? See, a repentant heart turns away from rule keeping. And that's what 
Jesus is getting at in verses 14 to 16, essentially. A repentant heart turns away from rule keeping. He's talking to these Pharisees who kept the rules, particularly on money. They tithed, they gave 10% of everything they had to God, but they did it to look good. And he calls them out and says, what's highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. You guys think you have it all together by keeping these rules and giving your money, but you're doing it just to look good in front of other people. Your heart is bad. In the process, these Pharisees used and abused God's rules to gain status and wealth for themselves. In verse 15, he says, God knows your heart. See, God knows if we're rule-keeping and that has become our God. He knows our hidden motives. We cannot hide before God. A repentant heart turns away from that, though. And a repentant heart turns towards Jesus' heart. This is in verses 17 to 18. Let me read it again, though. Let me help you understand this. Verse 17. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter in the law to drop out. Then LT says, for example, verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and everyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. What's going on here? Are these verses even related? Yes. Jesus is talking about his heart for one of the laws on divorce. He's not ignoring the Old Testament law. Verse 17, he goes, no, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one of these to drop out. He's not ignoring it. The law in the Old Testament is good and it's helpful. And he says, it's almost impossible for even a small part even, even a little, in English, a little dot on an I to fall out or a period to be done away with. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away. But let me show you what Jesus says in Luke 21, 33. You can just listen to this. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Interesting. Here's what Jesus is doing in chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. He's saying, I alone have the authority to explain the Old Testament law because I made it. I am God. I wrote it. So he's saying, don't ignore that. It's good. It's helpful. But I have the final authority and say on it because I wrote it. So he's saying here, a repentant heart will turn towards my heart which means you don't ignore the law. It's good, it's helpful, but you turn to me for applying it. Listening and obeying Jesus' teaching and heart for the law is what he's getting after. Jesus is now the authority on his own law, which is fantastic news. It's free. He is now the authority on divorce. So verse 18, I love that the New Living Translation says, for example, because that is what's going on here. He's using this, this particular law as an example. Now Jesus, let me, let me just say this, because many of you heard this and heard me read this and heard the buzzword of divorce, and you just, your mind's everywhere, but Jesus is not giving a comprehensive teaching of divorce in verse 18, Okay? 
Context is king when studying scripture. He is addressing unrepentant Pharisees. And he's trying to help the Pharisees see God's heart. And God's heart for divorce is that he's not for it and it breaks his heart. He's essentially saying divorce should not be taken lightly. And it breaks my heart. Now, Jesus does directly teach on divorce. You can look at that in Matthew 19. And there are other places in the New Testament. And there are cases where divorce is necessary. If you'd like to talk more about that later, we can. But this is not what this text is talking about. Now let me say to you that if you're divorced here this morning, God is for you. He loves you the same. He can and he does. And I'm sure I know, actually, people in this room could tell stories of him bringing beauty out of the ashes of divorce. So don't let the shame and regret of your past determine your experience of God's grace and heart today. Okay, don't get sidetracked by this today. Jesus is sharing his teaching and heart for the law of divorce. And notice in verse 18, he is not quoting the law. He's not quoting the Old Testament law. He could have. Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 would have been a good place to go where it says you can get a divorce if your wife becomes displeasing to you. So the Pharisees made some rules, as you can imagine, because as we've talked about in the past in Luke, the Pharisees loved to just take laws from the Old Testament and come, come up with their own little laws to apply it to people's lives. And they had, literally, they had these written down where it said, essentially, if your wife screws up making supper, you can divorce her. Whoa, okay? Uh, or, or if you find someone more attractive than your spouse, go ahead, it's fine. And Jesus uses divorce here because he's going, hey, those rules are ridiculous, Pharisees. And you missed my heart. I am not for divorce. It breaks my heart. This was not my intended purpose for marriage. So when we read the Old Testament laws, we should always ask ourselves, what does Jesus have to say about these things? And what does the New Testament have to say about these things? And that helps us turn away from mere rule keeping, which is me-centered. If we're just focused on keeping the rules, it's actually just about you. We should turn to Jesus, who helps turn our hearts towards his heart on anger, on lust, on divorce. And the list goes on and on, because he's trying to help us see his heart and then our need for him. Okay. Gut punch to the Pharisees, part one, complete. Check. God knows your heart, he says. Now part two of Jesus' gut punch to these unrepentant Pharisees. He's essentially going to say next, if you don't repent and live an entrusted life, there's going to be consequences. Verse 19. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at the gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. 
Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this flame. So let's press pause for a minute. What's going on? We got this rich guy. We'll call him Rich for obvious reasons. But in life, Rich was not a good steward. And clearly, because of where he ends up, hell, he didn't have a repentant heart. His heart was turned away from God and turned toward himself. But in, in this life, he lived an incredibly comfortable, lavish lifestyle. But in death, he was incredibly uncomfortable in hell. He was receiving eternal conscious torment in hell, which is what happens to anyone who goes to hell. He's experiencing the opposite of what he experienced here on earth, and this is the nature of the kingdom of God. Upside down, inside out. The first will be last, the last will be first, and this rich man, he got his reward here and then suffered for eternity. But there's another guy here, Lazarus, who was a poor man. You know what's interesting? I didn't know this before a couple days ago. Lazarus is the only character in any of Jesus' parables, and he tells a lot of them, who gets a name. Lazarus has a name, and he is poor, and he's head to toe in sores, and he's disabled and starving, but yet... He had a repentant heart. See, he's, Jesus is doubling down on, hey, God knows your heart and he sees it. And you will be rewarded because of it. If you have a repentant heart, the next life, death, will be incredible for you. And this is what Lazarus experiences. He is incredible comfort, pain-free eternal conscious peace and joy with God, opposite of his life on, church, on, on earth. This is this upside-down kingdom again, right? The first will be last. Well, here he is, poor, disabled, starving, now, feasting and enjoying peace and joy with God. Now, what, what a strange parable, though, right? But let's not get caught up in what, some people get caught up in what is Abraham's side, okay? He gets caught up to Abraham's side. What is this? I'm telling you, I've studied this. We're talking about heaven and we're talking about hell. Let's not get caught up in the fact that people also are talking to each other in heaven and in hell. That's not necessarily really how it is. This is a story to, to, to convey a point, okay? And here's the point. Let's keep reading. Verse 25. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot. Neither can those from there, from there cross over to us. In verse 27. Father, he said, that I beg you to send him to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told him, 
If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. There are eternal consequences for repenting or not repenting. Hell is real. And what you choose by not turning away from sin and self and turning towards Jesus' open arms that, is, that are pursuing us, He is pursuing us. We saw that last week. Not turning to Him is choosing an eternity in hell. Hell is real. Heaven is real though too. And it's what you choose when you turn from your sin and yourself and turn towards Jesus' open arms. You can question this all you want. You can deny it. You can get mad at people like Jesus or me who talk about it openly, heaven and hell. But it doesn't change reality. There are eternal consequences for not repenting. Hell. And there are eternal consequences for repenting. Heaven. There will be no second chances. See, this is what Abraham is getting at. We see in verse 27, Rich here finally has a heart and cares about his brothers at least a little bit. Finally, after it's too late, and goes, Hey, can you send Lazarus? Rise, raise him from the dead. Have him go talk to them and convince them, Hey, you got to repent. And Abraham's like, Even if I did it, they wouldn't repent because they have hard hearts. Abraham says, won't do any good. But verse 31, he told him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. And what a foreshadow that is. Did you catch it? Jesus will go on to rise from the dead. The one who's teaching this will go on to rise from the dead. Yet, these Pharisees he's talking to will still not repent after Jesus rises from the dead. But here's what's true. Jesus is alive today. Jesus has risen from the dead. So repent. There will be no second chances. Lecrae, a Christian rapper, has a song called Heaven or Hell. And I want to share this with you. And I, I'm a terrible rapper, but I can't just read it. So here we go. I hope that y'all listening well. There's only two places to dwell, heaven or hell. And if you represent the first, I pray you represent it well, heaven or hell. You should go and listen to that today. See, I love that line. If, if you're representing the first, if you're representing heaven, I pray that you are representing it well. Why? Because it's living an entrusted life. This is the whole point of Luke 16. See, a truly repentant heart will then live an entrusted life. As you continue to live a repentant life, if this is you, if you've trusted in Christ, we, this is a process. This is an ongoing journey of turning away from sin, turning away from self more and more, and turning towards Jesus and his open arms more and more and more. And then as we do that, we live an entrusted life more and more. And as we do this, here's what happens. As we start to treat money and we start to treat stuff less and less like ours and more and more like God's, 
our posture towards it goes from clinging so tightly to it to slowly becoming open-handed with it. This is the process of a repentant life. This is the process of treating stuff less and less like it's ours and more and more like it's his. And pretty soon we wake up one day and we, someone's going, hey, I really need five bucks. And we go, here, let me pray for you too. And we do it without even thinking. But it happens because we realize that this isn't ours. Jesus is alive. Jesus is living in you. And he can and he will give you the strength and the ability to loosen your grip on money and stuff more and more. But I don't even want to give you examples of how you could do that this morning, although I could. And here's why I don't want to do it. The risen Jesus, the Holy Spirit, if you are in Christ, is living in you. And I want him to tell you what that is. See, Jesus probably has some really tangible steps that he wants you to take to loosen your grip on stuff and money. So I'll let you talk to him about what that should be. Talk with him today. And as you do that, you'll actually experience freedom and joy. Because it is a joy to live open-handedly with the stuff that's just been entrusted to us. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you pursue our hearts. And so I pray that you would pursue each person's heart here today, God. And that they would respond and they would see the weight of their choice. And I pray for those in here who, whose hearts are just maybe a little hard. That you would soften them by your spirit, Jesus. And they would respond to you. Not just so that they can get out of hell. Not just so that they can get into heaven. But so that they really can experience life with you right now. The way it should be. In relationship with you. So that even when hard things come. Which they will. Even when days are long. Which they are sometimes. You're walking right beside them. Giving them joy that they thought was only possible through other things on this planet, but is actually only found in you. Thank you, Jesus, for being our portion. Thank you for being enough. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, you guys stand with us as we sing one last song together.